When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. If there's a country that, quote-unquote, punches above its weight, it's South Korea. It's home to some of the world's largest and most important companies. It's the source of pop culture that dominates Asia and even planted a foothold in the West. But the country's growth would be astounding to those looking on from the end of the Korean War. The South Republic of Korea was poor, devastated by conflict, and stuck deep in Cold War politics. Shrimp to Whale, South Korea from the Forgotten War to K-Pop, by Ramon Pacheco Pardo, published by Hearst earlier this year, tells the story of Korea over the past 60 years, charting the country's path through dictatorship and democracy to the economic and cultural powerhouse it is today. Ramon Pacheco Pardo is Professor of International Relations at King's College London and KFVU Beach Korea Chair at the Brussels School of Government. Governance. He is also a non-resident adjunct fellow with the Center for Strategic Studies, Korea Chair, and a non-resident fellow at the Sejong Institute. Today, Ramon and I talk about Korea, what it was like after the war, how it became a mature democracy, and what makes the book's title, Shrimp to Whale, especially apt. So, Ramon, Thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Free Books podcast. I want to actually start with that last point I mentioned in the introduction, which is, you know, why title the book Shrimp to Whale? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, this is one of those cases in which uh, the title came first, right? At the very beginning, uh, I think uh, I had a clear idea about the title, uh, and it relates to the, to the saying uh, that you have in Korean, that when two uh, whales fight with each other, the, the shrimp uh, gets crushed. And, and in this case, Korea would be the shrimp. Uh, historically, Koreans have thought of themselves as a shrimp between China and Japan in the past, between China and the US uh, today. Uh, and actually what I wanted to show with the title is that uh, I don't think this uh, holds anymore. Uh, I, I think that uh, South Korea is definitely not a shrimp. Uh, personally, I think that it has become a whale. Certainly not China and the US, but no one is China and the US. But it is among some of the other countries that you have uh, in the world who do have a say in global affairs that are uh, economic powerhouses. In the case of uh, Korea, South Korea, as you mentioned, it's also a cultural a powerhouse. Uh, so there are many other countries actually that would like to be in the position that South Korea is today. And, and I wanted to make that clear uh, from the title uh, that uh, there has been this transformation uh, over the decades since the country was uh, created back in 1948, all the way until this year, until 2022. Uh, and that this is what I'm trying to reflect in the book. So, you know, we tend to start contemporary Korean history with the Korean War. Um, but you know, do we? What do we miss when we kind of start Korean history in 1950 with the North Korean invasion? What what happened before that that we need to know um, to understand South Korea? Well, I, I think this is a very good question. I think this is uh, an important period that we often forget uh, because we, we we tend to look at South Korea 
to start with the with the Korean War as, as and the North Korean invasion of the South. Uh, but actually, what happened beforehand, uh, of course, independence in 1945, but also the partition of the country into two in 1948 was crucial in my view to understand contemporary uh, South Korea. Uh, f- first of all, uh, because of course the partition of the country means that from the perspective of South Koreans and, and North Koreans, uh, the country is not full yet, right? And there needs to be at some point reconciliation, if not reunification uh, between the two Koreas. And that's an important driver of, of policy and politics uh, and even societal debate uh, in South Korea. It may not be the most important debate uh, today, but it's certainly something that South Korean uh, politicians uh, and, and many groups within civil society and society at large have uh, in the back of their heads. Uh, so, so that's important to, to understand contemporary South Korea. Uh, but also very importantly, during this period of time, uh, 1945 uh, to 1950 and 1948, when South Korea was created to 1950, uh, we start to see the division between uh, left and right. Uh, we see the division between those uh, South Koreans who um, believe that uh, the country is uh, dominated uh, by elites, uh, back then by political elites, military elites, that is too uh, suburbiant uh, to the U.S. Uh, because, of course, there were uh, U.S. troops in, in, in South Korea even before the country was created in 1945 when, uh, when we had American troops and also Soviet troops making their way into the country. So there are South Koreans, especially left-wing South Koreans, that they think that this is not a natural state of affairs, uh, that South Korea needs to be uh, different. And uh, there may be less debate, for example, today about the presence of U.S. troops within South Korea, but there's definitely debate about the business elites, political elites that has not disappeared from the country. And then on the other hand, you have South Koreans uh, who are uh, quite happy uh, with this uh, state of affairs, uh, who think that the business elites, political elites, the presence of American troops uh, in the U.S., the combination of all these factors are good for the country and make South Korea stronger. Uh, and, and this is something that we should uh, consider as well, that this uh, uh, point of view about um, South Korea dates back all the way to the 1940s and is something that has not disappeared. Of course, it has evolved. The, the, the way of thinking that you see in South Korea today is not the same as we had in 1948. But some of these big debates, some of these uh, points of view about how South Korea should look like, that definitely continue to exist uh, today. And I would also add uh, one final point, that if you look at 1948 to 1950, uh, one of the big concerns of the Asian Mang administration back then uh, was the presence of uh, communists and uh, left-leaning South Koreans who had a communist uh, sympathies, right? And and this was a very big, important driver of South Korean politics at the very least all the way until the 1980s when we saw the transition to democracy. The fear uh, that many South Korean leaders had of the infiltration of the country's politics, economics, labor movement as well, uh, by communism, uh, not only by North Koreans, but also, as I said, by South Koreans, who had uh, communist uh, ideas. And uh, this was one of the main drivers of the big repression that we saw of the labor movement, but also of the student movement during the 1950s, 1960s, and as I said, all the way to to the 1980s. And that really started uh, in in the 1940s. So it started before the Korean War. 
Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about the, um, the period of, of South Korean dictatorship, because, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's, you know, that there's a view that, you know, the dictatorship was responsible for kind of helping to develop Korea, helping to grow Korea's economy, that, that, that the work of, of people like President Park helped to kind of lay the foundation for South Korea's economic strength. That is one view. The other view, of course, is that you can't ignore, nor should you, nor should one ignore the the repression that happened, the repression of the labor movement, the repression of activists, the fact that it was a dictatorship. You know, how do, how, I, I guess kind of as a historian, like how, how would you, how should one kind of think about this period of South Korean history? Um, you, you could argue it's a crucial period in South Korean uh, history because it started the transformation, the economic transformation of, of South Korea into what it is today. But also the, the repression that you were mentioning led to a social transformation within uh, South Korea that eventually led to the democratization uh, of the country. Now, if we start with uh, economics first, uh, I, I think we we have uh, to be clear, South Korea was an extremely poor country uh, in the 1950s. In the aftermath of the uh, Korean War, it was one of the poorest uh, countries uh, in the world with a huge uh, illiteracy rate, um, hunger uh, across the country. Um, there wasn't proper housing or infrastructure in the country. And the transformation took place under the PAC government, especially in 1960s, 1970s. Uh, of course, in the one afterwards as well, even though he's very unpopular, but he continued the, the economic reforms of, 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 of PAC, right? And, and what you see during this uh, period of time is the basis of the modern South Korean economy. You see uh, the Chebol, the big conglomerates becoming uh, the dominant actors uh, in the South Korean economy, uh, driving not only economic growth, but eventually innovation as well, which is something that I think we need to, to, to consider when we talk about the uh, tech-advanced uh, Korean economy of today. The foundations were laid out in the 1960s, 1970s by, by this table, by, but also by the government, because the PAC government was very clear that it, it, it wanted South Korea to move to the to the next stage. It didn't want it to, to simply be uh, the factory uh, of the world, um, producing uh, textiles, uh, shoes, toys, etc., etc. And the foundations were laid out uh, back then. For example, the creation of uh, KAIST, uh, one, one of the most important universities in, 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 in South Korea. Research centers as well were created in this period of time. And there was this push to eventually make the, the Korean economy innovative. Uh, now, at the same time, it cannot be uh, hidden. Uh, there was huge repression, uh, not the levels of repression that we saw in, in North Korea even at the time, never mind today, uh, but certainly the, there was a persecution of uh, left-leaning uh, South Koreans. There was a persecution or repression of the of the labor movements so of workers in South Korea that were demanding uh, higher wages. Uh, they were met with uh, with, with violence, uh, as, as, as simple as that. Many of them, of course, sent to prison. In the worst cases, uh, executed uh, as well. But you saw that the labor movement. Uh, didn't keep quiet and didn't, during this period of time. And it kept pushing for reforms. Eventually, uh, the, the, the final reform, which was the democratization of, of, of the country, but also you start to see better working conditions uh, to an extent from the 1980s onwards. And together with the labor movement, the, the importance of the, of the student movement, right? The student movement, uh, as more and more South Koreans 
were able to complete uh, at the very least a school education and eventually many of them also uh, started university. Uh, they started to gain this uh, social consciousness uh, that I, I wouldn't say that it wasn't there because it did exist before, but uh, they were in a sense very well uh, organized thanks to being part of the university system, being in universities, and they also press for better working conditions for, 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 for the workers, but they also press for more freedoms, right? And, and eventually also press for, for democratization uh, as well. And this is something that I think uh, shouldn't be forgotten because uh, I think in the past we focus too narrowly on, on the economic growth of South Korea without, without understanding the, the social dynamics that came together with this uh, economic growth. And that's something that I actually try to pay attention to in, in, in the book, right? To show that yeah. it wasn't only the economic change, but also the social changes. You know, it, it, and let's kind of maybe get into the, get into the um, social changes a bit. I mean, South Korea is one of an increasingly diminishing group of countries, it seems like, that's kind of successfully made the transition from dictatorship to um, a stable and mature democracy. Um, you know, it has elections, it has transfers of power, um, it has presidents ejected due to demonstrations and protests. Um, you know, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about that process of democratization, how it started and how it continued. Uh, yes, I, I think this is, is very apt to, to, to ask that question at this particular point in time, right? When, when in many countries we feel that democracy, if anything, uh, is going backwards. And, and you see that, you know, if you look at uh, different uh, studies about the academic studies, but also academic studies about democracy, well, South Korea continues to, to strengthen its, 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 its democracy. Uh, and I think, uh, to a large extent, uh, this is because of a change in mentality that took place uh, already starting in the 1960s, 1970s, but especially in the 1980s, when there's this final push uh, for democracy. And uh, many South Koreans, including uh, many politicians, but also business people, said, well, we have uh, made it uh, economically. We have become more developed. And obviously, by the 1990s, it was becoming uh, clearer. Uh, but uh, we are not an advanced country because we don't have a democracy. So, so the perception that the most advanced countries in the world, right, uh, back in the 1980s, of course, Korea was looking at, at the US and Western Europe, especially Japan to an extent as well, right? They were saying, well, how do we get to that level where we have to, to, to be different in political terms, right? We have to be a democracy. And you saw a coalition of of, of people, right? I've talked before about uh, workers, students, but there were also uh, some religious movements, uh, the feminist movement that became uh, very strong in South Korea in the 1980s, also pushing for democratization. And at some point, even uh, politicians, right? Uh, realizing that this was the way to go. Of course, there, were, there had been uh, politicians, including uh, Kim Dae-yoon, for example, Kim Jong-sang, two of the presidents during the uh, democratic years, who had already been pressing for democracy. But you see this uh, wave uh, of politicians as well, who, who, who even conservative politicians, who start to think differently uh, about what does it mean to be, to be modern, and they also press for democracy. And I think this has held all the way until today, of course, with the candlelight movement uh, that we saw. Um, uh, against um, President Park Yoon right when when there was this this uh, pressure uh, because uh, there were uh, corrupt practices right as as uh, South Korean courts uh, later on uh, later on uh, judge as well uh, they press for a change in president uh, because uh, 
South Koreans want their politicians to be held accountable. And I think this is something very important to understand as well that uh, I, I think that in other countries, you know, once uh, presidents leave office, uh, we kind of leave them alone, right? Uh, we don't really look at what they have done uh, in the past, but this is not the case uh, in South Korea. And I think this is what helps to make the, the, the democracy in South Korea uh, so strong and also what it why it continues to strengthen uh, because the people press the leaders and the leaders agree that this is the way to go to be seen uh, as a modern country, not only economically developed, but also in political terms. You know, South Korea then had to face kind of a number of big economic challenges, um, you know, pretty soon after democratization. You know, one thing I was I was thinking about kind of what are some anniversaries we're, we're coming close to. And one of them, I think, was that we're in the was it 25 years since the 97 Asian financial crisis, which, of course, affected Korea? You know, how did Korea kind of make its way through not just 97, but also 2008? Like these these economic crises that these these global crises that emerged, how did South Korea kind of navigate its way through those? I, I think this is a crucial question to, to understand contemporary South Korea, especially in 1997, because uh, in 2008, uh, South Korea did, did, did a much better really than in 1997. It was one of only two developed countries along with Australia that actually didn't suffer a recession in 2008. But partly this was a result of 1997. Uh, and, and 1997, there was the economic shock, but there was also the psychological shock. And I want to start with the second one because something I stress in the book, that 1997, uh, the economy recovered um, swiftly. But psychologically, there are scars that continue until today. And this is because uh, South Koreans thought they had made it. 1996, that's when South Korea joins the OECD. And actually, 12 months later, uh, you see South Korea going uh, cap in hand, really, to the IMF for the biggest bailout in the history of the of the IMF until then, right? Uh, $57 billion. And what we see is that South Koreans, many South Koreans start to think, well, actually, maybe we haven't made it. Uh, there has been something wrong with our economy. There were accusations uh, of, of corruption, that the government and the Chebol were too close uh, to each other. Uh, but also there was a rethinking uh, about uh, the economic model of the country. So from 1997 onwards, for example, you see South Korean governments still obviously supporting the Chebol, but also supporting uh, entrepreneurs, right? The idea that you need to have uh, an economy that is uh, more balanced with a, a bigger number of innovative, smaller uh, companies uh, and more South Koreans actually embracing different ways uh, of life. So some of them, as I said, becoming entrepreneurs, but some others thinking, well, uh, that life is not only about the economy and about having a job uh, in a table, getting a, a, a good pay and the benefits that come with it. We have to think that even tables uh, may be um, forced to fire people as they did in 1997-98. So they're starting to look at different things uh, uh, from life and from life as well. And you see this, I think, also in the younger generations that are less willing to endure the working conditions of the parents and grandparents, essentially working six days uh, a week and being all day in, in, in the office. This is not what younger South Koreans want uh, anymore. And you can trace all this back to 19. Uh, 97. Now, in economic terms, it is true that recovery was uh, quite quick, uh, and I think this was a, a combination of South Korea doubling down on on, on exports, uh, also of course because the value of the won 
against the dollar and against other currencies had gone uh, down as a result of the of of, of the crisis. Uh, but also, I think part of the recovery was also um, moving away from the previous model and pushing more for innovation, more clearly for innovation. As I said, this goes back to the 1960s and 70s, but clearly from 1998 onwards with the Kim Dae-jung government onwards, uh, you see a big push to make the Korean economy uh, innovative. Uh, Firms that we know about, of course, Samsung, LG, uh, Hyundai, of course, they were all uh, investing by themselves in innovation, but you see a lot of investment from, from, from the government as well, uh, because there was a realization that the old economic model didn't work uh, for South Korea. It should also be said that it wasn't only the Asian financial crisis. Shortly after, of course, China joined the WTO, and by the late 1990s, it was clear that China was going to join the WTO. And South Korea also realized, well, we cannot compete with China on price. Uh, we have to compete at the global level uh, by having a different economic model. And this is what you saw during this uh, period of time. And this is why in 2008, South Korea did suffer, of course, like uh, all other economies across the world, but suffered far less than it did in 1997. It suffered far less than uh, Western European economies, uh, Southern Europe as well, or the U.S. itself. So we've already talked a bit about how North Korea affected South Korean politics um, and the the threat of North Korea, how that distorted South Korean politics. Um, but but obviously there are more is that, that that's not the only country that's kind of on South Korea's mind or the mind of the minds of its leaders there's China there's Japan there's the US how did South Korea's place in the international system change over time and how did i guess successive South Korean leaders see South Korea's place in the international system change over time i i think that's interesting that you ask about China first because you could argue that this is the country, uh, the, the way that South Korea thinks about these countries, this is the one on which his thinking has changed the most. Uh, uh, during the Cold War, of course, it was, it was an enemy. He was uh, had sided with North Korea, obviously, during the, the Korean War. Uh, it, it was the main economic and, and diplomatic support of, of, of North Korea, along with the Soviet Union, uh, during the Cold War years. So, so it was simply seen as an enemy. Now, this has started to change already in the 1980s when you saw the open up process in China. And China started to be seen as an economic opportunity as well. Of course, there were many political problems already in the still in the 1980s because they were in different camps and, and there was still the ideological division between East and West uh, back then. But at the same time, you start to see economic exchanges between uh, South Korea and China, not only this, something very important from a South Korean perspective, uh, China was one of the very few communist countries that participated in the 1986 Asian Games, but also participated in the Seoul 1988 uh, Olympics, Seoul 88 Olympics. And this really changed the perception that South Koreans had of China. I said, well, in theory, they are a communist country, but look, they are in an economic opening up process, and also they have come to our games, being held here in, in, in Seoul, even as North Korea was asking them to boycott both the Asian Games and the Olympic Games of 1988. And, and, and this is a period that I look in detail in, in, in the book, because I think it's important to understand how relations shifted 
Uh, and of course, then in 1992, when you see normalization of diplomatic relations, uh, you actually see China very quickly becoming, uh, by the early 2000s, uh, the, the biggest uh, trade partner uh, of South Korea. Uh, but not only that, uh, China-South Korea relations becoming much stronger, in my view, than China-North Korea relations, even though in theory China and North Korea are allies. But then at the same time, what you have seen in South Korea is that already in the 1980s, China was seen as a potential economic threat, right? Uh, many South Koreans already back then thought, well, uh, China is not going to remain the factor of the world uh, forever. At some point, it is going to try to become a more innovative economy, like, like South Korea itself. So it's going to become a competitor, right? So there was this perception that, that China will one day could become an economic threat to South Korean firms. Plus, obviously, more recently, you have also seen as democracy has really become one of the defining values of, of, of South Koreans and especially younger generations, uh, this perception that China has become more authoritarian and, and under Xi Jinping, that of course many other countries have as well, but it's very obvious in the case of South Korea. And you, started, you have started to see tensions uh, as well, political tensions between South Korea and China, uh, as well as some economic tensions, of course, for example, when China imposed Sanctions on South Korea after the, the after after the PAC government decided that it was going to to deploy the the TAT anti missile system. So I would say that relations today obviously are not as bad as they were from the 1950s to 1970s or even 1980s. Uh, we're not going back to that period, but clearly relations were better in the 1990s and early 2000s. And and now I would say with with Japan a similar process happened. Um, but, but the change already came in the 1960s, right? But obviously after the colonization of, of, of Korea in the 1940s and 50s, relations with Japan were, were, were poor. But then in 1965, uh, when, when you see uh, Pak Chun-e right, normalizing uh, relations with uh, Japan, very controversial at the time. Of course, there were many demonstrations against this, but relations started to improve uh, since then, I don't think we're ever going to have um, the the the, the uh, we're going to see uh, South Korea Japan relations to be on the same level of South Korea U.S. relations. Uh, for example, there is always going to be some degree of historical animosity. But I would also like to emphasize that we should also consider that the the, the level of exchanges um, before the pandemic, of course, student exchanges, business exchanges. Uh, tourism going back and forth between the two countries uh, was was phenomenal. So there is the political problems that sometimes you see uh, between Japan and uh, South Korea. Uh, for example, when when uh, when you see uh, Imo Bak, for example, in uh, in in the early 2010s, when when he visited uh, Tokto, which is a disputed uh, island between Japan and and, and, and South Korea, right? Uh, he visited and, and we saw uh, very poor relations uh, between South Korea and, and, and Japan back then. But you saw economic links, uh, tourists going between the two countries. Uh, these were increasing uh, at the same time. And I think after the pandemic is uh, really over, I think we're going to see how these people-to-people links are going to continue to be strong. Political relations sometimes will be good, sometimes will be bad, but I don't think that they're going to 
be an impediment to these strong people-to-people -people relations. And when it comes to the U.S., I mean, it has to be said, over 90% of South Koreans support the alliance uh, with the U.S., uh, is a country that, uh, of course, perceptions are not as good as they may have been uh, in the past when South Korea was poorer, when it was authoritarian, uh, when, when, when South Korea wanted to become to the U.S. Uh, in South Korea today, as in many other countries, there is a big debate about the the, the, the problems afflicting uh, the, the, the U.S., like uh, gun violence, gun, uh, for example, which is uh, unthinkable in South Korea to that degree of, uh, of violence to begin with, never mind uh, gun violence. But now, for example, this debate about abortion that you see in the U.S., which uh, when you see South Korean, like other developed countries, going in exactly the opposite direction that you see the U.S., Going. Of course, there's discussion about this, and, and this uh, affects the perception of the U.S. in South Korea. But still, uh, very good relations with the U.S., uh, many student exchanges, business exchanges, tourism as well. Uh, many South Koreans still have a very positive perception of uh, many aspects of the U.S., such as, for example, uh, Silicon Valley, right, or, or, or finance and the economy, right? So, so in a sense, uh, this has been going on for, for, for many decades. Yes, many South Koreans want to be more independent when it comes to foreign policy uh, from the U.S., but this is not such a big uh, debate, right? The perceptions of the U.S. are still very good. And I would argue, and I make this point in the, in the book, that actually many South Korean politicians think that the alliance with the U.S. actually makes them more independent because it allows them to be part of groups, you know, G20, for example, other groups that otherwise they might not be able to join. So I want to shift over to talking about, I guess you can call them South Korea's two most famous exports. Um, the first, I think, being uh, Samsung, you know, and by extension, the other large table in Korea. You know, how integral are companies like Samsung to the story of Korea? They're, they're central. They're central to the history of of of, of South Korea. I mean, if if you look at uh, economic development, uh, uh, credit credit is due. The Chevel were instrumental uh, to the economic development uh, of, of of the country. Uh, Park Chung-hee, of course, was the president back then, but he was working closely with the business leaders of the country. But not only that. I mean, I think if you look at where the South Korean economy is today, and if, if we Think about the exports, as you said, from Samsung, LG, the other table. Uh, we're thinking about uh, semiconductors. Uh, we're thinking about uh, mobile phones, flat screen TVs. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing robots as well being exported from South Korea, right? We're talking about high tech goods being exported to the rest of the uh, world. One of the latest ones, for example, uh, green uh, ships being exported from, from South Korea uh, to the rest of the world, right? By, by companies such as uh, Hyundai, for example, right? Uh, they have been crucial throughout this whole period in driving economic growth, not in, in the number of jobs, because the largest employers in South Korea are actually small medium-sized enterprises, but in driving economic growth and driving uh, innovation uh, in the country. And not only that, when it comes to recognition, and, and in a second, yes, we can talk about culture, of course, but for many uh, decades, uh, South Korea was uh, being known um, thanks to these uh, companies, right? Uh, your Samsung, LG, etc., etc. So, so in terms of branding, they also help national branding. And now that uh, when uh, more and more people think of South Korea about uh, a modern, developed, high-tech economy, 
to a large extent is thanks to this uh, table. So it actually helps uh, not only the table themselves, but it also helps uh, uh, smaller companies that can come with a brand recognition, so to speak, the country brand recognition that is being driven by, by, by this table. Uh, on the negative side, of course, uh, when, when we think about corruption in Korea, that was very high until the 1990s. Um, it, it was to a large extent because of the links between the table and the uh, and, and the different governments that South Korea uh, had. Even though, as we say, that if you look at the latest rankings, well, well, corruption in South Korea is not particularly uh, is not particularly high, but definitely was a problem uh, in, in in the past. There was one last aspect that I think uh, we uh, shouldn't forget about this. Uh, big uh, conglomerates uh, uh, as well, uh, which is that if you look at the politics of South Korea, uh, election after election, uh, South Korean politicians, uh, candidates to the presidency, both left and right, have run a platform of table reform. Uh, and, and this is because many South Koreans uh, believe that the table at the domestic level they stifle innovation, that they buy up uh, new companies uh, as they emerge. Therefore, you cannot see a diversification of the economy and new companies emerging, right? And it seems that many politicians have agreed over time because, as I said, they usually run on a on a table uh, reform platform. Uh, this hasn't been the case in this year's election. Uh, it seems that perceptions of the table have been more positive, maybe because of the necessary recovery from the from 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 the pandemic, from the COVID nineteen pandemic. But it should also be mentioned, yes, that many South Koreans uh, they have uh, this uh, dual view of the table. Yes, they are good in terms of branding and they help with exports, but also they may hinder. Uh, the creation of new companies. Uh, and and that's, that's part of the political debate in, in South Korea. So the other big export I want to talk about um, is uh, Hallyu, I guess. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly. But, you know, Korean music, Korean popular culture, movies, TV shows, so on. This is obviously a big topic, but, you know, why in your view has South Korea been able to become such a cultural powerhouse, competing with the likes of the US, the UK, Japan. Yes, it's a very interesting phenomenon, right? Because if, this, if, if, if I first lived in South Korea in 2003, 2004, right? And, and Hallyu was becoming big in, in, in Japan. I mean, I had many Japanese uh, friends. Also, my husband's been from Japan. They're attracted to Korea because of, 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 of Hallyu, especially pop singers back, uh, back then um, uh, and, and pop bands as well. Uh, all the same from Southeast Asia, Taiwan, China. But uh, not in, in in Europe and not in the US, right? So it, it was difficult to predict that this would become a global uh, phenomenon, but it eventually did. And and I think uh, that there are three three main reasons. Uh, in, in my view, the first one uh, and probably most important one that we shouldn't forget uh, is because they are good uh, cultural products, right? Uh, and some people would even argue that you cannot call them uh, products, right? But if we talk about uh, as, uh, this as an industry, right, uh, they are products and that, that they're, they're very good. Uh, you have uh, very good songs, very good movies, uh, very good dramas, uh, good production. Uh, and that's something that we shouldn't forget. And I, I will start by saying this because uh, I'll get to the other reasons why I think Hollywood became so popular, but sometimes... You know, people argue, well, this was the government, right, that created Hallyu and and, and made it uh, successful uh, at the global level. But the South Korean government is not the only one that has been trying to promote its own culture. All, all governments try to promote their own culture and not all of them have been successful. So in the case of South Korea, I think we have to start with the product, which I think is very good. Now, why I think it's so good is the second reason why I think Hallyu became so popular uh, is because uh, I think 
there's a lot of uh, creativity uh, in South Korea, but uh, South Korean creatives are also able to adapt foreign elements uh, to uh, their products, right? To their songs, movies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is something that uh, South Korean artists have very open. Uh, about, for example, the many South Korean directors that they talk about how they spend time in the US, in different European countries like the UK, Germany, for example, and that helped them to incorporate foreign aspects, foreign elements into their movies, right? Uh, and, and they think that this is part of what made them successful, mixing the Korean with the uh, with the foreign. But if you look at, for example, uh, K-pop songs is the same. You have many foreign uh, producers, some writers that are involved uh, in the development uh, of the songs, not only Korean ones. So do you see this mixture, right? So I think these are two the two key reasons. Now the third reason, I I, I, I do agree that I think that the government make a made a good job uh, at promoting uh, Korean culture. And so they're not the only one doing it, but I think they were successful, for example, in promoting alternative channels. So for example, uh, you know, letting um, uh, South Korean um, Firms know well. Why don't you try uh, to promote your products through 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 the internet, right? And, and helping with this, also launching festivals, uh, K-pop festivals that uh, these days still continue to exist in many countries uh, across the world, and and and, and making these uh, sometimes it wasn't the government launching them, but at the very least supporting them, right? With uh, giving a funding, for example, for this to take place, as we saw, for example, in 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 in, in California. Right and in other states in the in in, in the U.S. they starting in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, so you saw this as well, this support from the government uh, that was uh, very targeted, sometimes at a very uh, micro level, but I think also uh, supported uh, the 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 internationalization of 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 Hallyu. So I want to end with maybe just some quick thoughts from you about uh, the most recent event in Korea, which is the election of President Yoon. What do you think that election and its results, you know, tells us about Korea today and how it's changing? I think it was a very interesting election um, for two reasons. Uh, First of all, because there were not many policy differences between uh, the two main candidates between uh, uh, Yoon Seok-yul and Lee Chae-myung. Uh, if you look at their platforms, uh, wh- what you saw, in my view, was an understanding that uh, the economic model, but also the liberties that the country has been achieving in recent decades, uh, should continue. Right? In, in a sense, if you look at the platform by by Yoon Seok-yul. Uh, running for the conservatives, but if you look at his platform, it would have been a liberal platform, uh, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, If if you look at um, uh, his economic policy, but also his social policy, and for me, this indicates that there is this uh, uh, agreement uh, within South Korean society, but also the main political parties, that... uh, you can tinker, of course, uh, with the system, but that there shouldn't be an overhaul. I'm saying this is a right thing or, or, or wrong thing, right, for, for South Korea. But clearly the political parties, I think uh, the main political parties believe this is the case. And if you look at voters, uh, well, many of them continue to vote for this uh, party. So they seem to uh, to agree, at least partially. And I think the second interesting aspect about the election uh, is that uh, there was a divide. 
there was a divide in the vote. Uh, some people said there was a gender divide, uh, but I think actually that the biggest divide uh, was a generational uh, divide. And you see how uh, the over 66, over 60 overwhelmingly voted for, for, for Yun with uh, no gender differences. Uh, and if you look at the over and, and, and the 40s, they leaned uh, for the most part uh, towards towards uh, towards either the, the the liberal candidate, right? So yes, there were some gender differences, but I think there were more generational differences. And I emphasize this because I think the biggest divide, if you look at values, for example, if you look at service being conducted of South Korea, they tend to be based on 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 age, not necessarily on on gender or any other. Uh, socioeconomic uh, indicator. And I think this uh, election showed that there is this uh, generational uh, divide. Uh, it is true that men in their 20s also, majority of, majority of them voted for, for June. Uh, but if you look at their social values, uh, they're not so different uh, from, 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 from women, the same age, for example. Uh, it was more for economic reasons, right? And I think since the election, the most interesting development has been that uh, something that already had started to happen under Moon and even before, you can trace it to PAC or even even back, right, that the growing recognition of South Korea at the global level, but you see it's very recently when Yoon uh, uh, Seok-yul, for example, attended the, 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 the NATO summit, right, and all the meetings that he had and so many foreign leaders wanted to meet with him uh, because they wanted uh, North Korean uh, nuclear technology. They wanted other technologies coming from South Korea, including uh, arms, for example, right? So this recognition that the South Korean economy is high tech, that you want to meet with the president of South Korea, uh, you invite him to these uh, important gatherings. Uh, of course, uh, Moon Jae-in went last year to the G G7 as well. Uh, but I think you can see under Yoon uh, Seok-yul, how this is going to continue, right? The, the growing recognition of South Korea at the global level, not only as I said in the area of culture uh, that we have talked about or economics, but also in the area of politics as well. Uh, and I think this is very interesting to note. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Ramon Pacheco Pardo, author of Shrimp to Whale, South Korea from the Forgotten War to K-pop. Ramon, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what's your next project? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for asking. Uh, I mean, the, the book is already out uh, in, in the UK. It's coming down in, in with, with Hearst, as you mentioned. In the US, it's going to be distributed by Oxford University Press, and it should be coming out over the next few weeks. Many readers have told me that it's available on, on, online, so, so you can access it online, buy it online quite, quite easily using any of the major uh, online shopping uh, platforms that there are around the world. And, and in South Korea, it's actually available in, 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 in bookstores uh, as, as well. So, so you can buy it online, but also in bookstores. So I think by now it should be available uh, everywhere, uh, really. I know also some European uh, bookstores uh, are also holding it because some, some people have been kind enough to send me pictures <laughs> of the book in the local bookstore. Um, my next project, actually, uh, I, I have a couple. One of them is uh, as an academic project. Uh, it's a book on South Korean grand strategy from 1988 until uh, today, actually. So, so I look at uh, the main threats uh, underpinning South Korean foreign policy grand strategy uh, throughout the period of democratization, which should be out next year. Uh, I'm also by writing a book uh, also for the general public, uh, together with uh, Professor Victor Cha, who is based at CSIS and, 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 and Georgetown. 
uh, and we're writing a, a book on contemporary Korean uh, history uh, from the 19th century, uh, again, uh, and, until today. So that's the other book that I'm, I'm, I'm working on. And these are my two next projects. Well, I look forward to hearing more about them. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB Podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Ramon, for joining me today. Thanks to you for having me.